Dr. Joelle Gerges is an award-winning climate scientist and writer. She is an internationally recognized expert in Australian and Southern Hemisphere climate variability and change, who has authored over 100 scientific publications. Between 2018 and 2021, Dr. Gerges served as a lead author on the United Nations' Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's sixth assessment report, a global state-of-the-art review of climate change science. She's the author of Sunburned Country, The Future and History of Climate Change in Australia, and most recently, Humanity's Moment, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope. Joelle Gerges, welcome to One Planet Podcast. Hi, May. It's great to be here. So between 2018 and 2021, you served as lead author of the United Nations IPCC 6 Assessment Report. And in 2022, your book, Humanity's Moment, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope, came out and it's a real call to action. Can you set up the passage you're going to share with us? So I think when people talk about climate change, a lot of people can feel like it's quite hopeless and that it's all too overwhelming and too big and Sometimes we lose faith in humanity and our ability to really rise to the challenge that we're facing. So this is quite a a personal passage, which looks at understanding that, you know, there's a lot of pain in life, but there's also a lot of beauty. So this is basically a little passage about hope. I've learned that it's one thing to understand something intellectually and another thing to really feel something in your heart. When losing the thing you love triggers a cascade of pain that leaves you sobbing. You come to understand the true value of the irreplaceable. The agony of this kind of loss is deep, sharp, and enduring. It leaves you aching each day until every shard either eventually dislodges or embeds even deeper. It's a permanence you must learn to make peace with. It becomes a part of who you are. When my heart feels tender, I'm learning to let the balm of love and nature gently piece me back together again. Like the golden seams of Kintsugi, perhaps our own cracks are our richest part of ourselves, and mending each other's breaks is a mutual act of healing. People are always going to hurt and disappoint us. That's life. It's the human condition. But if you aren't careful, a few bad experiences can really damage your worldview. It's figuring out how to stay connected with the people who restore your faith in all that is good, the people who make life worth living. The struggle is to hold on to the belief that there is still joy to be had in life, in the simple, spontaneous moments when you give yourself over to the moment and allow yourself to be moved by the beauty that still surrounds us. When people feel too hard, I look to the natural world, the fern unfurling in the garden, still untempered by the elements, holding the gaze of a kookaburra sheltering from the rain as it settles before taking flight, drifting with the drag of the waves that gently tosses you through the sandy shallows at low tide. The sense that nothing can or ever will change is one of the hallmarks of depression. As Rebecca Solnit puts it, the despair felt like a storm, a becalming, a running aground. Believing that things will ever get better is still something I grapple with when things get really bad. Although I've cycled through this enough times to know that these feelings will eventually pass, when I'm in the grip of darkness, I honestly don't believe it ever will. I'm slowly learning that I need to be patient and remember that, eventually, the wind will pick up and catch my sails once more. I've also discovered that I have people in my life who are willing to wade in and give me a nudge until the stick of the sand beneath me gives way and I'm back in open water. But when I boil it all down, what gives me hope comes down to this. There is still so much goodness in humanity. Even if you can't see it around you or have stopped believing that it even exists, there is still something good in all of us. When I'm really down, I have to trust that eventually, when the darkness has finally dissipated, I will be able to see again. Until then, I need to hold on and be guided by the light in others. 
When I allow myself to shelter in their compassion and care, it steals my own flickering light until eventually it starts to steady itself and glow a little brighter. Oh, that's so moving. And you spoke about coming to peace with it. And really, this book is how you came to peace with some of those emotions. Exactly right, Maya. So I think for me, a lot of people ask, in my line of work as a climate scientist, how do you not just fall into a state of despair and really just see the really dark aspects of human behavior and our inability to correct our course and do the right thing? And the truth is, is that we all have to reconcile it in some way. And you can either be really consumed by those darker emotions and that feeling that people don't care and that those sorts of ideas, or you can just try and see beauty where it is and connect with other people who are also doing their very best. So I think this kind of binary thinking of black and white, people are good or bad, isn't quite right. There's this shades of gray and, and sometimes people do the best that they can from day to day. But other times we just have to, I guess, a sense of being stubborn and believing that there is goodness out there. So I guess this was my way of processing a really large sort of planetary scale dilemma. And how do you find meaning in a world that's changing so quickly? It's a big thing to think about. Oh, indeed. And you really put this pure emotion into the telling of this important story because data, as you know, it's like it goes over our heads. And so you managed to get to the core of what we need to do and how we can go about it. And it leads a path for us. And I like the whole organizing principle of humanity's moment because you have the head, the heart, the whole. Exactly. Yeah. So that's right. To understand something intellectually is only one part of the equation. And it is important to understand the nuts and bolts of statistics and things like that. But a lot of people don't have an emotional response to that. So that's why I talk about the heart. So that is the emotional processing of what it is like to be living through this era of really rapid change and transition and witnessing places that we love disappear before our eyes and realizing that we really are the generation of people that are witnessing the world changing in such a rapid way. And so I think when you stop and contemplate how profound this moment is, it's really, you can't not have an emotional response to it. And then the third part of the book is called The Whole, which is understanding that really as individuals, we can, you know, go a long way to do things, but it's collectively, it's about how we collectively work together to really bring to life this vision that we have for a more harmonious relationship with our planet, but also with each other, because how we treat each other is reflected in the way that we treat the natural world. And so I really think there's a lot of scope for healing in this and righting the wrongs of the past that we can actually do things differently. Yes, and you've shared that during writing the IPCC assessment report and during the writing of this book, there were moments where you felt that you couldn't go on. How did you overcome that? Yeah, that's a really good question. Look, there are some times where it does overwhelm me and I don't think I overcame it particularly well. There would be times where I would really be plunged into quite a deep depression. And I suppose the way out of that was really encapsulated in that the passage I just read, which was really sheltering in the goodness of others and connecting with other people who remind me that there's still beauty in this world. So even though I might be feeling really distressed by some of the work that I'm exposed to in my profession, that it isn't just black and white. And sometimes things are going to be really difficult. That That's life. I mean, the reality is, is that life is really painful and there are some really difficult realities, but there's also an immense amount of beauty and joy and all those things. And so it's an active decision to seek those things out, seek those people out and those groups that make you feel connected. And also just realizing that sometimes you need to go into a deep place of contemplation and a place of solitude where you 
sort of put your own pieces back together. And for me, that often involves connecting with nature. So whether it's the ocean near where I live or the rainforest, being around other living creatures and other landscapes, and that makes me feel like I'm a part of something that does feel timeless and eternal. And I think that human beings, we have that in our bones, no matter where we are, Whatever culture you're from, wherever you live on the planet, we all share that really deep primal connection to the planet. So I guess it's a case of letting it flow through you, really, because sometimes it is going to, I think sometimes resistance is futile, like it is just going to move through you, but realizing that it, it will pass, it's not going to completely break you. I mean, that's been my experience. I try and write about my experience with that. You know why? Because I think a lot of people feel these things and I hope that my writing gives other people permission to express their own emotions and to realize that there's another conversation that we could be having in public about how we feel about climate change and our changing world. And I really hope that it just provides people with some language around how we express those things. Yes. You share these beautiful visits to ancient forests, which has been a part of your work for years. And I, I didn't realize some of these things. You can reconstruct a past El Nino events from the Kauri growth rings. So the when you go into these ancient forests, you have this deeper connection than maybe those of us who don't understand the science behind it. Yeah, that's a really nice point. I guess as a scientist, I mean, the reason why I became a scientist, to be honest, is because of my deep love for the natural world and living in a country like Australia, which is absolutely extraordinary. You know, we have more unique plants and animals than anywhere on the planet. So more than places like Brazil or Papua New Guinea or Madagascar, these places you think of as being really biodiverse. Australia actually tops the list when it comes to just in terms of the uniqueness of our natural environment. And so growing up in a place like that really, I guess, infuses into your pores. And so I would go into these beautiful places, whether it be rainforests or go to the coast, which I love. And then as a, a young person, I was really drawn into wanting to study science. And so that's why I became a scientist. So I guess I do move through these landscapes in a slightly different way to say other people who maybe don't have that training, but I guess it's my love of the natural world that really is the fuel for the fire that keeps me going in this area. So I think it's fascinating, for example, that you know every single year trees can actually put down this growth ring and that is responding to things like temperature and rainfall. So you can as long as that tree's been alive and some of these trees can grow up to 2,000 years, you can have this really long record of climate that extends back beyond the official weather records that generally begin around about 1850 over most of the world. So it's one of these things that I just inherently find science really fascinating and being able to use these different types of records to reconstruct past climate allows us to look at these cycles of natural climate variability and then understand how they're shifting as the planet continues to warm. Which you also addressed in Sunburnt Country, your previous book. Speaking on forests, what was that like for you living through the Black Summer in Australia? You write with the personal distress, the individual connection that you have to these ancient trees. Yeah, look, for me, I think the Black Summer bushfires of 2019-2020 was really a turning point where I realized that as a scientist, I almost had this responsibility to start speaking up a lot more and really clearly about the sorts of trends that we were experiencing here in Australia and how it connects to a warming planet that's being warmed by human activity. And so we had come off the back of a really serious drought and it was so dry. 2019 was Australia's hottest and driest year on record. And everything was so dry that we saw tropical rainforests that are usually 
moist, really damp places that are covered in moss and things like that dry up and actually be turned into fuel and ignite and burn. And to me, when that started happening, I just absolutely blew my mind that I was witnessing rate forest burning. You know, we're used to seeing eucalyptus forests that are used to fires, but having fires in areas that don't usually burn was extraordinary. And during that particular bushfire season, we saw about 50% of these ancient subtropical rainforests burn, which is just devastating because there's only 1% of them are left on the planet. So we have the largest tract of them left on the planet this year in Australia on the East Coast. And to have 50% of them burn in a single bushfire season was just heartbreaking. And in that particular bushfire season as well, we saw 25% of Australia's temperate forests burn in a single bushfire season. So usually about 2% would burn in, say, an extreme fire season. So for that to be 25% just gives you an indication of these fires were just on a scale that we'd never seen before. And in the end, we saw 2 billion animals either killed or displaced from those fires. And now our most iconic mammal, the koala, is actually listed as an endangered species along the east coast of Australia, which is, again, Something I never thought I would experience in my lifetime, that our most iconic animal that we're known for around the world is now really critically under threat because of the loss of habitat and the destruction of these natural places because of a rapidly changing climate. So I guess it was that moment for me watching these fires unfold at the very same time I was working on this UN climate report, this IPCC assessment report, and it, it just was there was no distinction between what we were talking about writing this report and what was happening outside my window. And so I really felt compelled to start to share that information with the public. And so I would write pieces for places like The Guardian newspaper and other outlets would come to me to try and write to help people understand. But I guess humanity's moment is really like a deeper dive into the science and a way for people to help join the dots. So while you don't have to be a scientist to read it, I still give people enough of a background to be able to feel comfortable navigating that material. But it's basically my contribution to the broader community to help people decide what they would like to do next when it comes to climate change, because really we have some very, very serious decisions to make collectively. And all we can do is really manage how we show up in this moment. And there's a lot of power in that. Yes, indeed. And speaking of fires and places where we didn't expect them, we have, of course, now Arctic wildfires. It's unbelievable to stop and think that you've got such heat extending so far into polar regions that even these places are burning in the Arctic. I mean, it's extraordinary. And not just trees, but also the permafrost, the frozen soils underneath these frozen places in the Arctic are also starting to thaw. And when they start to thaw, that releases a lot of methane. Methane is a very, very powerful greenhouse gas. And along with carbon dioxide, that really combines to accelerate warming. And so this is the thing. We're witnessing these changes in our lifetime. And to think as well that you have like 40 degree temperatures in the United Kingdom, I mean, that that's crazy stuff. But it just goes to show that we're really starting to witness serious climate extremes that can no longer be ignored. And the IPCC, one of our key conclusions to that report was that effectively the human fingerprint on the climate system is now undeniable. It is now an established fact that we have warmed every single continent, every ocean basin on the planet. And again, that's a pretty serious thing to contemplate that human activity from the burning of fossil fuels and the clearing of 
land has led to this imbalance, this energy imbalance in the Earth's system, which is leading to a rapidly shifting climate. And so you mentioned there methane, and many looked at keeping the methane levels down as one of our easier wins in terms of keeping us beneath 1.5 degrees of change. Yeah, so methane is one of these, it's a shorter-lived gas in the atmosphere, so it only really sticks around for a couple of decades, whereas carbon dioxide can remain in the atmosphere for centuries. And so when we talk about trying to reduce methane emissions, it's a quick fix in terms of reducing warming in the short term. And we do need to do that through changes in industrial agricultural practices and a range of other means. But obviously the burning of carbon dioxide is really the main one that we need to get on top of. So most of the warming is very much driven by carbon dioxide. So while methane is certainly a very important greenhouse gas, it's really CO2 is the main culprit. And when we talk about the level of global rates of the increase in temperature of 1.5 degrees, maybe it looks like we're going to go beyond that. You've written also, this doesn't give the full global picture. It's an average. I mean, what does that mean for Australia? What does that mean for different regions? So unfortunately, the IPCC basically concludes that we're on track to breach 1.5 degrees of global warming in the early 2030s under all emission scenarios. So even those low emission scenarios, because of our trajectory, we are going to reach that within a decade or so, which is, again, very serious. There are very, very serious implications in terms of what that means. But when we talk about 1.5, if you're thinking about a global average, about 70% of the earth is actually made up of ocean. And the ocean is cool and it absorbs a lot of heat, whereas the land reflects a lot of solar energy back into space. So when you average the areas of ocean and areas of land, you end up with a global average, but it does mask some of the warming that will be experienced in the continental areas where people live. So the warming that we've seen over the land is actually warmer than the global mean because it, these areas are you know, not being buffered by the ocean, which is like a way of, of keeping a bit of a handbrake on global warming. So about 90% of the heat uh, of global warming is actually stored in the ocean. So we're going to see changes in, in different parts of the world. So we talked about the Arctic before, and the Arctic's actually warming three times the global average. So we've actually seen over three degrees of warming in that part of the world already, which is substantial, right? It's really substantial. And here in Australia, there was a new report that was released just today, actually, which was showing that Australia has now warmed by about 1.47 degrees since 1910, where we have our official weather record. So that's effectively 1.5 degrees of warming. And even though right now we're at 1.2 degrees of global warming. So it just goes to show that there's some areas that will warm faster or slower, depending on whether they are land areas, ice areas, ocean areas. These all have different sort of thermal capacities, and that influences the local climate change that gets experienced from one region to the next. Yes. So really, everything has to change immediately. Now, I guess we have to peak carbon emissions by 2025. I don't know if that's possible. Cut them down by over 40% by 2030. Yeah, that's right. So the United Nations have basically advised that we need to halve emissions effectively by 2030 to be on track to try and get to net zero emissions, which is the target of the Paris Agreement by 2050. So we need to basically decarbonize global economies. We need to restore ecosystems and we need to shift our lifestyles to have lower carbon footprints. But the good news is that all the technology we need to do this actually already exists, but there is very entrenched economic interests 
that stop us from moving forward. So right now the world is fueled by the burning of oil and gas and coal. And a lot of people are making a lot of money out of that. Whereas with things like renewable energy, you can put solar panels on your rooftop and all of a sudden you're not paying anything in terms of an electricity price. If you happen to live in a sunny country like Australia, you end up getting your electricity for free from the sun, which is extraordinary. But actually, Renewable energy is now the cheapest form of electricity over 60% of the Earth's surface, which again is an amazing thing to think about. And yet we haven't tapped the full potential. Less than a third of global energy is generated by things like solar and wind and other renewable energy sources. So there's a really huge potential, but it is that moment where we can transition into a sort of low impact sustainable future. So I see that as a really positive thing. But We're in this moment where we're transitioning from an old technology into a new technology. And if you stop and think about history, where we went from the horse and cart, where people used to, you know, have a horse and cart and now, and then they went into automobiles, it's the same sort of thing. We're just advancing our technology. So it's inevitable that it's going to happen. It is happening right now. In the book, I highlight a few examples globally and also here in Australia, just to say that this is doable. We can do this. And I think we need to get better at telling these stories that are more hopeful and are really lighting the way for people to realize that this is not just some utopian idea that a bunch of environmentalists have come up with. There's really hard science on it that all the way up to the UN level that shows this is all feasible, possible, and entirely deployable now if we want to do that. So that is our collective challenge. That is basically what people have been in Egypt with the COP27 meetings and the Conference of Parties to the Paris Agreement, their 27th meetings. So the world leaders have just met to try and do this. It's a big, big task, but it's one that I think we can do and we must do it. Yes. I don't know if we'll go into the mixed messaging with all the fossil fuel lobbyists who also attend the different conferences. But yes, it is possible to help us understand energy accounts for, I think, about a third of all emissions. And as you say, we can definitely improve on that count or we improve on the amount of emissions and methane through landfills or through our agriculture. Is it true that there are options available in every sector that can half emissions by 2030? Look, the IPCC's Working Group 3, which deals with mitigation, so what do we do about climate change, have gone through all the different scenarios around the feasibility of doing that. My understanding is that there is scope to do it in all different sectors, which I think is really exciting. There are some hard to abate areas. So there are some areas like shipping and aviation and a few other sectors that the technology is still evolving. But that doesn't mean that we can't go forward with the other areas like electricity generation and so forth. But if you stop and think about it, if you put the research and development and the finance behind it, you could really accelerate a lot of these programs. And you only have to walk through a university campus and see the kinds of people that are working on this day and night. It's amazing to realize how ingenious human beings are. So to answer your question, Working Group 3's report basically outlined the pathway forward. They're not the only group to have done that. There are many other groups who have also shown that decarbonisation is, in fact, possible and feasible and something that we must do. And I guess it's really difficult for people to follow the conversation because, as you mentioned, there's a lot of misinformation and information gets misconstrued depending on the person who is delivering that information, which is why I love being a scientist. Because my job is to just try and present factual information to people 
and then they can make decisions about what they want to do. I mean, as scientists, like I said, for IPCC, we were all volunteers. We didn't get paid a single cent to work for three and a half years on this colossal report. But just goes to show you that not everybody is motivated by these sort of insidious forces. Many people are good and altruistic and do things because they care about the collective good. And so, yes, it's possible. There are some challenges. There are some technical challenges in some areas, but there's also an enormous amount of progress that's been made in recent years. Indeed, the IPCC itself as a body can be considered as an example going forward. If all of humanity could act collectively like that, as though we were not all individuals or separate countries, but like one country, this one planet, I think that it's inspiration to us all. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I think I also felt like I wanted to share that in my book because I think working at the United Nations level gave me a direct experience of what it is like to work with people from literally all over the world with this common goal. And we're all very different, but we also have a shared humanity. And I think that it's extraordinary and it's beautiful and it's extremely moving to work in that way. And, I, and that's the thing, right? I really do think that when humans want to step into their higher selves and work for the common good, we can absolutely do that. And, you know, our history is full of that as well. So it's just a case of remembering that and being a part of that wherever you can be a part of that, because you can choose to be a part of this social movement that is sweeping the world right now in terms of our push to live sustainably on this planet. It's happening all over the world. And so, you know, what we do on an individual level in terms of how we show up in this moment really makes a difference. And in terms of these life lessons that were passed on to you in your beginnings as you made your way as a scientist, you wrote about your father, the example of your father and the importance of education. Yeah, I did. I mean, it was difficult to actually write about my dad because I guess, as I mentioned in the book, he died in 2017 and he was obviously a really significant person in my life. But he really instilled this whole idea that education is the key to a better life and that it's the great equalizer. So my heritage is from Egypt, so I'm not wealthy. But when my dad studied at university and then he was able to break out of his social background and it allowed him to move into other areas and create a better life, not just for him, but for us. And I think that it it was very formative for me because it made me realize that anyone from anywhere can change their life if they're really determined. But it doesn't mean we all have equal access to equal resources. And my dad had to work really, really hard, as have I, and, and many people around the world. It's like, at the end of the day, all you can do is really the best with what you've got. And I guess I've tried to do the best with what I've got. He certainly did his best with what he was able to do in his lifetime. Yeah. And it is about doing more with less. I want us to overcome our, our current challenges. And we're facing a kind of environment where we may have to have degrowth. Your father was formed during the Great Depression. Yeah, exactly right. And I think that in many ways, I think we've hit peak consumerism. And I think it's leaving a psychological void within us because we're trying to fill the void with a whole bunch of things, a whole bunch of objects and materials and things that aren't really that real or useful. And it's not providing us with psychological or spiritual growth in many ways. So I think a lot of people are starting to realize that because there's also like a lot of marketing and social media and all these things that we're being bombarded with. And there's a lot for young people particularly to navigate in this space about what is a meaningful life? What do we need to find meaning in life? Is it our relationships with people? Is it plastic surgery to get better lips? Is it the latest pair of shoes? Look, they're all personal questions that everybody has to look at themselves and think about what really matters in life. But 
ultimately, I would say that many people who are paying attention would agree that we've lost the way. There's a statistic I quote in my book where it's something like about 90% of all marine birds now have plastic in their stomach and plastic is a byproduct of the fossil fuel industry. And I think it's just a horrifying statistic and reality to think about it that we have just overrun the planet to such a degree that ecosystems are starting to collapse and alter in ways that are dramatic and major. And I think we have to reflect on that as a species. And I guess that's part of the invitation of this book is to stop and to think about what it is to be human at this moment in time. So as a physical climate scientist, I'm basically giving people the nuts and the bolts of it's like a planetary stock take. Here we are. And what do we want to do? And I guess every single moment, you know, every single decision to exploit the natural world has led us to this moment. And it is a moment where we're literally destabilizing the Earth's climate. We're seeing ecosystems starting to collapse and we're seeing major impacts. So where we are right now is a cumulative experience. And so it is the moment to try and put the brakes on, to right the wrongs and to also redefine our cultural values. And this is something I talk a lot about in the second part of the book, because I find that really inspiring to think about. I want to live in a society that values, for instance, in Australia, the Great Barrier Reef being alive rather than dead. And right now we've lost 50% of the Great Barrier Reef since 2015 because of coral bleaching from the warming of ocean temperatures around our coastline because of a fossil fueled warming trend that we have globally. So it's about thinking about those things. Like, do we actually collectively care about those things? Are we going to actively protect those things? And I think those cultural values and those social norms that, for instance, I think the case of plastics is a really good example of the social norms starting to shift there where a lot of people now find it really out of fashion to use plastic and plastic's actually banned in a lot of places now. And I think one day in the future, we'll look back and think, oh, can you believe we used to use plastic? And the same way where we'll also think about the burning of fossil fuels, the way we think about things like asbestos and using asbestos in our homes and building materials. It's just, yeah, I guess once we have more information, we can change our course. And I think this is the call to action that we are in right now at this moment. Climate change is often looked at through a scientific or economic logical lens. There are a myriad of facts anyone could access about climate change, such as that a million species are threatened with extinction or that 85% of wetlands have disappeared. But, as Dr. Virgus says, in addition to the science of it, there is a very deep emotional reaction to climate change. It is a horrifying thing to learn that our very own way of life is ravaging the planet, that our way of life will continue to ravage the planet exponentially, and also that many people know about this and choose not to act. I myself am a student of environmental science and sustainability, and I often describe what I do and what I study as staring into the abyss. It is very difficult to think about all the ways that our inaction to change on one side and on the other, continued horrible actions wreak havoc on our planet. I really appreciate Dr. Gerges's emphasis on community and allowing space for emotional reactions. We are going through a collective traumatic event, but as Dr. Gerges says, it is also the time for tremendous collective change. I have always found that community is the solution to the deeply disturbing period we are living in. Turning outward to people that feel the same way as you and want to put as much effort into the fight as you is a truly healing experience. I also appreciate Dr. Gerges's emphasis on the philosophical aspect of living through the climate crisis and the questions it raises, such as what does it mean to be human? 
We often see ourselves as a species above all the rest because we are capable of technology, of expressing ourselves in writing, of deep feelings, and more that we believe puts us above other species. But what does this mean if we are destroying the planet? Are we really the superior species? Although these are difficult questions, I appreciate that Dr. Gerges, especially as a climate scientist, recognizes the need to give ourselves space in this time to listen to our emotions and whatever other responses we may have to learning about the climate crisis. Yet, once we have adequately processed our emotions, we can use them to act, to fuel our actions, to dig deeper when we feel like giving up, and to reach out and create community in a moment where we may feel like we stand alone. And now, back to the interview. And talking about plastics, the irony as well that Coca-Cola sponsored the COP27, which I think it's 110 billion single-use bottles a year Coca-Cola produced. It's mind-boggling. But again, like I've traveled to Egypt a few times to visit family, and Coca-Cola has a huge presence in the developing world. So I can understand that in terms of the sponsorship, the Egyptian government would have seen that as a kind of a viable option. But it also just goes to, because they probably have a relationship there, because as I said, it's a bit of a giant in many parts of the developing world. But it's, yeah, it's ironic, obviously, and obviously we need to do better, but different parts of the world are waking up at different rates. And so, of course, I understand the criticisms, but, you know, we can't shift these things overnight. And I guess it's about understanding that the developing world in many ways is kind of lagging behind, but they also have the opportunity to learn from our mistakes from the developed countries and bypass some of those things. So instead of continuing to, say, burn dirty fossil fuels, they can get into renewable energy, which is a lot cheaper and doesn't have to destroy the environment as well. So I think it's swings and roundabouts. You know, some things are good about that and some things are more difficult, but there is certainly an equity issue around that. Oh, definitely. And we do also, of course, have to open our mind to these kind of public-private partnerships and business has to you know, work with society but in terms of multinationals having that huge power to make giant changes to their emissions. Look, I think change has to happen everywhere, but the really important things with the large corporations is the social license. So consumers and voters either remove or provide the social license for these types of behaviors to continue. So if we want to continue to trash the planet, we need to let corporations know that we don't want to put our money behind that anymore. So you can choose to do that in many, many different ways. But I guess removing the social license for the continued destruction of our planet has to shift. I mean, and this is where these social movements become really inspiring to think about it because it always just takes a small group of really committed people to shift a social norm. And I quote some research in, in the book, which basically says you only need about 25% of a population to shift a social norm. And then the rest of the population goes with those progressive elements. So right now we're in this moment where we're basically saying no more fossil fuels. We are cooking the planet. This is what the world scientific community, that's what we're saying. We're cooking the planet. We must stop. And I guess the challenge here is to get enough people from all over the world, from all different parts of society, not just the scientific community, because we're only just a very, very small fraction of people that make up our communities, but we need to mobilize people in a huge way to vote for our politicians at every level, from the local to the federal level, who are going to reflect our values around shifting to a sustainable future and choosing to leave a legacy which is more one of care and repair rather than just complete destruction. And we owe it to 
we owe it to the young people. I mean, there's a chapter in my book where I, I talk about intergenerational damage. And it's one of these things I feel really strongly about because I don't think it's fair to leave this burden on the shoulders of young people. We have to take that responsibility here and now. All of us in positions where we do have political power or economic power through the way we consume, we have to do what we can. You can't expect a bunch of striking school kids to be able to do that. Although I respect them greatly and I, I really, really value what they're doing. It's really up to decision makers and, and the people in power because they're really doing that to put pressure on our decision makers. And I guess that's really where the rest of the community can play a role in that. And that's where I think it's quite exciting because that's how all social movements happen. That's how you get political change. As a student, I'm really grateful to hear you say that. And speaking of fighting this crisis, you've said before that it's important to celebrate the small victories in this fight. Do you think that this will change as we get closer and closer to the end date at which we can continue to burn fossil fuels at the same pace, assuming nothing changes? Look, I think it's really important to recognize when there has been progress. But I don't think we're going to get to a place which is this kind of utopian place where it's done and dusted and we never have to deal with it again. The next few decades is going to be a very difficult time of two steps forward and one step back. And it's going to be a constant battle for this sort of social justice and for this shift in the system. So I think it's really important to realize that this isn't going to happen overnight. This is going to take decades. And if you stop and think about other great social movements like the whole civil rights movement in the US or gender equality around the world, we're not in a place where that is done, that is ongoing. I mean, obviously with the climate crisis, it's a little bit different because we do need to get to net zero emissions. But I guess Getting back to the point of that question, it's really about just trying not to let negativity seep in and stop you from doing what you can, even if it's imperfect, still move forward because it all culminates into something because everybody around the world is all doing their little bits and pieces of what they can do. And if we just all gave up, then that would be disastrous, right? That's the, kind of the situation we're in where we're you know, not doing enough. So it's one of these things that I, I really think it's just a positive framing and it's something that. The American writer Rebecca Solnit writes a lot about in her book, Hope in the Dark, which I adore. And it's a book that I found really, really inspiring. So, you know, if you want to read more about social movements and, and these sorts of things, I recommend her work. And you've said before that most ordinary people do care about the climate crisis and want to solve it, which I think is definitely true. How do you think greenwashing fits into this, for example, in ordinary people caring less about the climate crisis because they believe it's already being solved effectively? Yeah, gosh, it's a real, real problem. And I guess that's part of the reason why I wrote a book about it. I want to get away from greenwashing. I want to get away from spin. I want people to hear straight from the horse's mouth what the science is saying. And there are other books. It's not just my book. There are other books out there. So my advice is to go to trusted sources and realize that there are a lot of really intelligent people who are providing reliable information out there and to focus on that. Because if you focus on the greenwashing and all that sort of stuff, it's just a distraction and it's the delay and we don't have any more time for it. So it's an insidious force in our society. And it's recognizing that not all sources of information are created equally and be really, really careful of where you get your information from, because there are a lot of vested interests in wanting to maintain the status quo, which is the continued burning of fossil fuels until the bitter end. There are companies that want to do that. And so I guess it's about waking up, educating yourself, and then spreading the message 
in a way that people can understand. Speaking of which, can you tell us more about your mindset in terms of hope for the future when we consider the fossil fuel industry, its profits, the subsidies it receives, and the donations it makes to leaders in power? It's huge. It's the biggest challenge that we face. This is the major obstacle we face to the implementation of the Paris Agreement. So I'm not going to pretend this is going to be easy. It's going to be the fiercest battle that humanity's ever faced. And this is why we need every single person who can wake up and exert power to do so at this moment. And that's why in, in the book, I basically said, we need you. We need people to wake up and to take their money away from fossil fuel companies and to take their money away from, for example, superannuation companies that invest in fossil fuel projects and things like that. There are many, many things you can do personally to remove that social license to say, that's not okay anymore. I'm not going to put my money or my political support around those things. And then we vote in those leaders who go in and represent us at these negotiations. So we need to really think long and hard about who we are voting into our political process. And if you don't like it, then you can also do something to change it. And here in Australia, we've seen this really exciting new political movement where these independent candidates have been coming through and the community supporting them because they're basically using platforms of increased awareness around climate change, gender equality, integrity, and a range of other values that our society actually cares about. So they actually did really, really well. And we kicked out a very, very conservative government here in May 2022, where we were basically the last stronghold of developed countries wanting to continue to export and develop fossil fuel reserves here in Australia. So it just goes to show that basically this is the challenge right now is how we basically address this problem. And that's why we need people to be aware that there is a problem. And then there are many, many things that you can do. And there are many resources and other organizations doing that work. I guess from my perspective as a scientist, I want to provide people with the best possible scientific underpinning for their decision making. And also to help them realize that really what we do in the next 10 years is make or break for humanity. Because in another 10 years, we would have locked in so much global warming that there are some irreversible elements of climate change that play out that are difficult, if not impossible to adapt to. So that's why we talk about this as being the critical decade, because we really need to turn it around in, in this next decade. And how do you feel about stepping into the mostly unprecedented role of a scientist working as an activist and the frustrations that come with it? including people such as politicians, doubting your sound science? Well, I don't actually consider myself an activist at all. I'm a scientist and I'm a writer. So I'm a research scientist first and foremost, and I'm a university lecturer. So I'm not comfortable with the label of activist because I don't consider myself to be one. However, information that I do provide in my books and other writing is there to help fuel other people who might want to be community activists in their own different communities and in their other spheres of influence. So I guess there are different roles for different people to play and that's up to individuals to decide whether or not they place faith in the work that I've done. But to work at the United Nations level, you have to have a very extensive published scientific track record and it is extremely difficult to get a seat at that table. You only really have to look at, you know, a CV like mine or other lead authors on that to realize that we have a very, very solid foundation in the work that we talk about. So it's just an extension. I just now see this as I feel compelled. I don't feel like I can just sit here and do my research or teach my university courses and not share this information with the public. So that's why I feel the need to do that. I wish I didn't because I'd be pretty happy just getting on and doing my other work. 
this is more work for me. There's nothing I really get out of it economically or something like that. But it's not about that. It's actually about a livable planet. And as a scientist that worked on this report, I want to be really clear that we're in a planetary emergency situation now. I don't know what else I can say, but it's very cynical to cast doubt on people like me who have dedicated my entire sort of professional life to this. But people will do that, of course, and I do receive those sorts of hate mails and trolls and all that sort of thing, but I don't care because I know that what I'm doing is right. So I'm on the right side of history and I can sleep at night knowing that I've done everything. Indeed. And yes, you normally have the luxury of time as a scientist. And as you've addressed, you have to be one of an advocate. It's an unreasonable expectation. Yeah, look, I think many of us are feeling increasingly called on to do this work. I'm certainly not the only one. I mean, I'm prominent in Australia because I guess I've just got a way of communicating that is clear enough for average people to understand. And so I guess I try and use that skill to communicate broadly to a range of different groups. But it's true. I mean, it's extra work. It's not work we get paid any more to do this. But as I said, it's not really about that at this moment. It's actually about having a planet that we can live on into the future. That is the most important thing right now. And you quote Pope Francis in your book, who's writing of St. Francis of Assisi. And I think that this also applies to you. It helps us to see that an integral ecology calls for openness to categories which transcend the language of mathematics and biology and take us to the heart of what it is to be human. If we feel intimately united with all that exists, then sobriety and care will well up spontaneously. Absolutely. I love that quote. Thank you for reminding me of it. It's so beautiful, but it just goes to show that this is that inherent connection to nature is universal. It doesn't matter what culture you're from. It doesn't matter if you're religious or spiritual or whatever, doesn't matter. It is an inherent part of being human. And ultimately it all boils down to protecting the people and the places we love. It's as simple as that. It really is. It doesn't need to be more complicated than that for the average person. And that's basically what we're here to do is to get people to wake up and realize that they're living through the most profound moment in human history and to choose to be a force for good and a force for change and behaving in a way that you can feel proud of in years to come. If you have children or grandchildren, people will say to you, where were you in the 2020s? And you can say, I did this. I did everything that I could. Sometimes we look back at the 1960s as this really revolutionary time, and we are actually living through the most revolutionary time ever, right? And so if you stop and think about that, that becomes a real motivating factor. And that's something that I hope the young people who might be listening take heart in. Thinking about this is that they are living through the biggest moment in human history, and they can choose to be a part of that social movement to protect our world. Well said. And thank you for being a force for good and helping us transcend the language of mathematics and biology, taking us to the heart of what it is to be human, helping us consider all our possibilities. So thank you, Joelle Gerges, for sharing your scientific knowledge, active hope, and imparting the message that we have the solutions we need to live sustainably and people alive today will determine humanity's future. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast. My pleasure. Thank you, Mia. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Eppeline Mall with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this podcast was Eppeline Mall. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenmark. 
Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.